the old pilots playing tales, a little VC tenderness. Some of you may know of an aircraft that holds a special place in my heart. As a child, I watched on our old TV in awe as it arrived at the Farnborough Air Show, whereupon the chairman of British United Airways had his large and showy Rolls-Royce offloaded as a demonstration of the size and capability of the new Combi cargo area. The aircraft was the Vickers VC-10, and the reason for my excitement was that my father was waiting to take that very aircraft onto Nairobi later for a commercial flight. Knowing that my dad, a World War II veteran who has featured in several tales, listens to the show, I trust you will forgive me if I take a look back at one of the aircraft that he loved to fly. The VC-10 took to the air in 1962, a sleek, narrow-body, rear-engined airliner with a commanding and beautifully swept T-tail. It was powered by four mighty Rolls-Royce Conway turbofans, had a length of nearly 159 feet, and its highly swept, slender wing had a span of over 146 feet. It could carry just over 150 passengers in great comfort and at speeds that modern airliners only dream of since it could easily cruise at Mach decimal 88. The VC-10 came about to fill a need for the British state long-haul carrier, British Overseas Airways Corporation, to have a medium-ranged airliner that could operate from the high or hot destinations that they flew to, such as Karachi, Singapore, Kano and Nairobi. With its design faults, the Comet wasn't a serious option, and they had already ordered 15 Boeing 707s, but they were oversized and underpowered for these destinations. The VC-10 was going to be a completely new design with some great concepts. By mounting the engines at the rear, it left the wing clean and able to give its best. However, the weight of wing-mounted engines on the 707 opposed the upward force of lift and reduced the amount that the wing bends. As such, the VC-10 wing would need to be stronger and heavier. The aerodynamic design, however, was groundbreaking. Vickers worked with the Royal Aircraft Establishment, the National Physics Laboratory, and the Aircraft Research Association to develop a supercritical aerofoil section that would reduce drag at high Mach numbers by delaying the onset of shock waves. In addition, the wing was tuned to delay conventional flow separation, resulting in a wing that was highly efficient at both high and low speeds. When compared with the very conventional shape of the Boeing wing, it was a generation ahead and the VC-10 could cruise faster and land slower than its main competitor, the 707. 
With its impressive 32.5 degrees of sweep, the wing had a maximum design Mach of decimal 886, but later in its life this was increased to Mach decimal 925 and up to Mach decimal 94 in a dive. Indeed, the VC-10 claims the fastest crossing of the Atlantic by a subsonic airliner of 5 hours 1 minute between JFK and Presswick. The VC-10 was one of the few T-tailed airliners that had a natural nose-down pitch in the stall, which was induced by an aerodynamic force created by the engine sails and a case was made for it to fly without a stick pusher. In a stall, the T-tail design is prone to enter a super stall where the tail is blanked by turbulence from the wing and becomes ineffective, preventing recovery. A mechanical stick pusher, automatically activated just before the stall, prevented this possibility and, in the end, one was added as a belt and braces safety feature. The early version, dubbed the standard VC-10, had higher than expected fuel consumption and before long, Vickers, or more correctly by then the British Aircraft Corporation, produced the Super VC-10. This improved model had more powerful engines, an additional fuel tank in the fin to increase the range and a fuselage stretch to increase the passenger load. It also sported improved Kuchman wingtip designs and engine nacelles that reduced drag and allowed it to cruise higher at the same weight. However, this made-to-measure aircraft was about to be overtaken by the off-the-rack Boeing 707. Built specifically for BOAC's needs, nobody had the imagination to realise that in order to operate the 707 from those worrisome hot high airfields, all that was needed were longer runways, which, over time, were built. By the time the Super VC-10 came along, it was competing directly with the 707 regardless of the destination, and as a consequence, the main customer, BOAC, tried to reduce its orders. The British government intervened, and the well-publicised squabble reduced the order book from other airlines even more. After all, if the main UK airline badmouthed and didn't want the VC-10, there surely must have been something wrong with it, right? In the end, BOAC's chairman, Gerard John Regis Leo Delanger and Managing Director Sir Basil Smallpiece both resigned. The new chairman, however, was no breath of fresh air, as he was equally set against the new shiny Vickers airliner. In the end, BOAC purchased only 12 standard versions and 17 supers, but they really hadn't taken into account the popularity the aircraft would achieve both with passengers and crew. It was particularly praised for its comfort, speed and low cabin noise level, and BOAC obtained higher load factors with the VC-10 than with the 707 or any other aircraft in its fleet come to that. A catchy ad campaign also helped when passengers were asked to 
try a little VC tenderness. Other airlines were less critical of the aircraft, and over the years it was operated by British United Airways, Ghana Airways, Gulf Air, Air Ceylon, East African Airways, Middle East Airlines, Air Malawi, Nigerian Airways, British Caledonian, Laker Airways, and British Airways. It also served with the military of Oman, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and the UK. By now, Vickers were just looking to cover their costs. They had built the aircraft to BOAC specifications and then been sold down the river, and since this was a private venture by Vickers, they were looking at a huge loss. However, the RAF was about to save the day. In 1960, they'd issued a specification number 239 for a strategic transport and placed orders for a number of VC-10s. They picked up more from BOAC's cancelled orders and there began a long love affair with the aircraft. It proved to be an excellent workhorse for the military, acting as a transport, an aeromedical and evacuation aircraft, a VIP transport and an air-to-air refuelling tanker. The last RAF VC-10 flew in 2013 when it was replaced by the Airbus A330 Voyager. The VC-10 was a much-loved aircraft and gave rise to many tales of daring do from its crews. A few of the more notable events include a day that was, in its time, known as the blackest day in aviation. Palestinians took control of a BOAC VC-10 as it flew between Bombay and London. It was the 6th of September 1970, and whilst passing over the Middle East, the hijackers forced the crew to land their aircraft at Beirut, before moving on to a rough airstrip in Jordan called Dawson's Field. There they joined a previously hijacked TWA-707 and Swissair DC-8, where they and their passengers became part of a group of 310 hostages. A fourth aircraft was hijacked, a Pan Am 747, which, being too large to land in the desert, was forced to land at Cairo, where it was emptied and blown up shortly after touching down. Whilst the hostages awaited their fate, the three Dawson's Field airliners were also blown up, images of which were shown on television around the world. With negotiations involving several countries and complicated by the Jordanian authorities declaring martial law and then initiating military action, it took some time to resolve the situation, but eventually all the hostages were released. However, it was this event that prompted President Nixon to implement the use of armed sky marshals on U.S. aircraft and to investigate the use of X-ray machines at civil airports. In June 1971, a VC-10 was on its way from Buenos Aires to Santiago when it hit a patch of severe turbulence over the Andes Mountains. In the word of the captain, David Phillips, We dropped like a stone, only to be lifted up again, forced into our seats. The wings tilted until we were, from time to time, flying vertically on our sides. 
The pilots found it almost impossible to read the flight instruments, but during a lull they were able to see that they were down at 28,000 feet, only a little above the Andes, which reach up to 27,000 feet. Then, after another terrifying bout of turbulence, they were thrown back up to 35,000 feet. The aircraft was tossed onto its side at over 90 degrees of bank and then pitched headlong down towards the mountain peaks, reaching speeds of up to Mach decimal 96 with the high-speed warning blaring. Moments later, the stall warning would be sounding. The severity of the upset caused the power control units on several flight control services to be knocked out of action, leaving the crew with very little control authority. Miraculously, they managed a recovery, resetting the PCUs along the way, and they landed the aircraft safely at its destination. After a ground check, it was dispatched on its next flight home to Gatwick via Freetown. However, during the Freetown to Gatwick leg, an unusual vibration was noticed in the airframe, which increased in severity. On finally landing at Gatwick, it became clear that a part of the leading edge of the stabilizer had detached, and the leading edge spar of the fin was broken. Furthermore, the wing torsion box had been distorted, with the wingtips now sitting about four feet higher than they should. The combined damage required lengthy repairs, and only after several months in the hangar did the aircraft fly again. The incident, however, proved the strength of the VC-10 airframe, as other aircraft in similar situations might well have lost structural integrity and broken up. Certainly, on an airliner with wing-mounted engines, the engine mounting pins would almost certainly have failed as the aircraft was spun around. On another day, in May 1967, a VC-10 was due to fly from Bombay to Nairobi. After a day's rest in Bombay, the flight engineer complained to the captain that he was feeling rather unwell, Unwilling to delay the flight, the captain persuaded the engineer to press on, so they departed on time. However, passing 10,000 feet, the poor chap had dreadful stomach cramps and had to dive into the toilet for an extended stay. He would have been there longer, but at 15,000 feet, they lost power on all four engines. The purser hammered on the toilet door and dragged poor Harry, the engineer, back to the flight deck. By the time he got there, they were descending rapidly towards the Indian Ocean. One by one, he restarted the four engines, and as power was restored, the descent was arrested, and the aircraft resumed its climb. There was one particular passenger who had noticed the engine stop and would not accept the standard story that it was a minor technical hitch. He demanded a large scotch on the house. The failure proved impossible to replicate, and in the end the inquiry had to give up, citing the captain as a most unreliable witness to the events that happened. To end on a more humorous note, a story from a flight engineer. During a long flight, a respected businessman and his wife were travelling in first class. 
At some point during the flight, the wife, a rather upper-class lady, visited the flight deck and remarked about the aircraft's vintage. A little upset, the flight engineer told the lady that, despite its age, the newest technologies were incorporated in the aircraft, voice-controlled throttles. Now, for the non-initiated, the VC-10 has two sets of throttles, one on the pedestal in between the pilots and a second set on the corner of the flight engineer's station. The engineer got an incredulous look both from the lady and the pilots, who figured they would let the chap have some fun and quickly went back to staring at their instruments. He went on to explain to the lady that all the pilots had to have their voices recorded for use with the system as it was quite sensitive. Still getting a questioning look, he asked the pilots to demonstrate. The captain, not wanting to interrupt the game, said, Number two throttle back. And to the lady's astonishment, the number two throttle on the pedestal moved back an inch as the engineer tweaked his own set of levers. The flight engineer then asked her to try it, and strengthened by the demonstration, she cautiously said, Number two, throttle back. But sadly, nothing happened. It was explained that she had to get a bit closer, as the system probably didn't pick up her command. A second try didn't get a result either, and now the engineer suggested that she lowered her voice a bit to better emulate the pilot's voice. Both pilots were now staring intently outside, doing their best not to laugh out loud, as the image of the lady on her knees behind the pedestal, speaking to the throttles in a lower tone as she could. This, of course, only got worse when she became ecstatic at the first sign of a throttle moving under her command. It must have been the combined shaking and the muffled sounds of laughter that emanated from the crew that finally made her realise that something was wrong, the end result being an angry visitor storming back to the cabin, leaving the flight deck filled with laughter. My thanks today to Jal Heiminger from Eindhoven, who has created the website vc10.net, the source for a lot of today's tales. I can recommend it. And also to Captain Andy Anderson. I hope that this has stirred a few happy memories. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show aviation podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.